The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Go ahead and open to John's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and as you're turning there, I wanted to just uh, share one more thing with you um, from the week's headlines. And we like to hold our Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand and look for points of intersection because God is not dead and he's not done and he's certainly moving and shaking and stirring things up and preparing this world for his soon return. And if you've been paying attention to the news recently, you perhaps caught wind of the fact that Russia's Vladimir Putin went to Iran and there he met with the supreme leader as well as the Turkish president, Ibrahim Rasi. And as this was unfolding, you have the picture of it there for you. As this was transpiring, something began to trend on Twitter, and it was Ezekiel 38. Now, why would Ezekiel 38 be trending on Twitter as these three world leaders got together? Well, those of you who have been studying your Bible know that the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel wrote 2,500 years ago that in the latter days of history, that Russia and Iran would form a military alliance and come together, and ultimately, they would launch an attack against Israel coordinated from the north. And here we have Russia and Iran and Turkey holding hands together. I think it's impossible to ignore the fact that Putin's visit to Iran comes right after President Joe Biden just went to Israel. It's a nation that Iran has continually threatened to annihilate. And I just, I bring all of this up. Am I categorically stating this is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38? I don't know. It could be. What I'm here to say is we're getting closer. Jesus talked about birth pangs, didn't he? And one of the things that those of you ladies know who you have children, as, as the birth pangs begin, they're far apart, but as the child grows nearer to being delivered, the birth pangs get closer and closer together. And that is what we see happening in the world all around us in these last days. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus laid out some of the things that we should be looking for, the telltale signs that would let us, as his followers, know that his coming was near even at the door. And one of the things he talked about, his wars and rumors of war, something that I think is true of our world today. Another thing that he said you should be on the lookout would be pestilence and plague. Well, we're coming out of COVID, and now they're talking about a brand new uh, iteration of COVID that is raising its ugly head. It's something that has impacted and affected the entire world. And so I share all of this not so that you'll be scared or that you'll run and hide in a bunker. No, no, no. That is not the call that God has given to us as his children. We are the children of the light, and now more than ever, we need to push forward the gospel. We need to look up because our redemption draws nigh. Jesus is coming back soon. As Christians, we believe in the imminent return of Christ. And if you don't know what imminent means, I like to think of it this way. It means in any moment, imminent, 
He could come back and in the blink of an eye, we could be caught up together to be with the Lord in the rapture. So we're praying for that. The name of our church is Maranatha and we're aware of what is going on around the world and we need to be praying, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to be praying for our lost family members and coworkers and neighbors and friends and loved ones because this world is a crazy place. But we don't need to be afraid because we already know how the story ends. Things aren't falling apart. They're falling into place. King Jesus is on the throne, and he's coming back for his bride soon. Somebody say amen. 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 We still got a Bible study to teach. I don't know what you guys are doing. But we got to get into the word. So let's, let's pray now and ask the Lord to instruct us as we open his word. Lord Jesus, you are the king who is seated on the throne in the highest heavens. And the leaders of this world who think they are so wise, who think they are so cunning and so crafty as they seek to fulfill their own little plans and agendas, Lord, you laugh because they are merely pawns that you are using to bring things into their perfect position to fulfill all the things that you have already spoken about in your word. We have peace in every storm because we carry the Prince of Peace in our hearts. So Lord, now would you open your word to us? Would you lead us and guide us into the truth? Would you instruct us by your Holy Spirit In Jesus' name, we pray and ask all these things together. And everybody said, amen. 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 The title of my sermon for you this evening is Jesus and the Thirsty Soul. Jesus and the Thirsty Soul. You know, years ago, a soft drink company ran an ad campaign that was focused around the phrase, obey your thirst. Anybody remember that? Obey your thirst. I think it was Sprite that ran this very successful ad campaign. And the company understood that as humans, we are all driven by various cravings and one of those being thirst. And they were saying, let your thirst drive you to our soda. (laughs) Of course, the thirst drive is one of the strongest drives that humans experience. Your need for water is so strong, in fact, that it's second only to your need for oxygen. And if you doubt that, I don't know why you would. But if you doubt that, try going more than a few hours without water on a hot day, and immediately your body will be crying out and demanding that you rehydrate it. Why? Because God has built us. He's designed our bodies with a thirst drive. But of course, you'll agree with me when I say this. It's not just water that our bodies and our souls crave. You see, our, our, our very inward being, our soul, was fashioned to thirst as well. It thirsts for things like love and approval and, and, and success and meaning and purpose and significance and so on and so forth. We are a big bundle of appetites. Bruce Springsteen said it like this in one of his hit songs, everybody has a hungry heart. And you know that's true. On social media these days, sometimes people will post what is a provocative or even a suggestive picture, and they do it in an attempt to get other people to comment on how good they look. It's like they're begging for compliments, and they call this setting a thirst trap. And of course, the world is full of thirst traps. I mean, we're all 
thirsty. We're thirsty. But if we're not careful, we can end up looking to different things to satisfy a thirst that God has wired into our souls that only he can satisfy. So you've got to be careful about where you go to quench your thirst. You see, all of that leads us to John 4, because a long time ago, Jesus had a very interesting conversation with a woman at a well. (laughs) She's simply referred to as the woman at the well. We don't even know her actual name, but maybe that's fitting, because in reality, she's a fitting picture of all of us. Now, the topic of their conversation that day revolved around water and thirst and the only thing that can truly satisfy the human heart. So let's go ahead and read her story, beginning in verse 1 of John 4. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. All right, so a lot going on here. I didn't want to interrupt the flow of their conversation, which is why I took time to read that whole dialogue. But the the major overarching theme here is this divine appointment that Jesus orchestrates with this woman. Of course, our story begins with Jesus leaving Judea and making his way north to Galilee. Now, if you were to flip to the back of your Bible and, and, and find the maps, you would see that right between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north lies Samaria right there in the middle. But rather than go through Samaria, which was the quickest and most direct route, most Jews chose instead to take the circuitous route and take three extra days on their journey and travel around it. So why would Jews avoid going through Samaria? And the answer is they hated each other. We think of racism as being more of a a recent phenomenon, but no, 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 it's old as humanity itself, and it was alive and well in Jesus' day, too. 
In fact, the intensity of Jewish disdain for Samaritans, it ran so deep that religious Jews would pray that no Samaritan would be resurrected on the final day. There's an instance recorded in John 8 where his enemies, Jesus' enemies, they referred to him as or labeled him being a Samaritan. It was a put down. Now, the reason Jews hated Samaritans had to do with the fact that Samaritans couldn't prove their Jewish ancestry. During the Assyrian captivity, they lost all of their genealogical records, and consequently, they weren't considered pure Jewish blood, and they were barred from worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. And so there was this deeply rooted kind of hatred or animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans. They were like the Hatfields and McCoys times 10. And so knowing that as the background, isn't it interesting that here we find Jesus deliberately moving towards the very people that others sought to avoid. When everyone else was trying to build walls, Jesus was more interested in building bridges. I love this about our Lord. You see, in John 3, Jesus has this encounter with Nicodemus, and it was Nicodemus, this religious Jew, who sought out a meeting with Jesus. But here in John 4, it's different because Jesus is going in search of this one woman. He didn't wait for her to come to him. He went to where she was, and then he found common ground upon which they could could commune and share there at Jacob's well. And then he asked to drink from her very cup. He spoke with her. He did all of that just so he could share the gospel with her. And listen, church, if our goal is to be like Jesus, then like him, we need to be willing to move towards the ones that others turn away from. Somebody say amen. You see, the culture we live in is is corrosive, it's divisive, it's characterized by chaos and contention and fighting. It seems like everyone's interested in building and protecting their tribe or their camp, and and we huddle up behind our belief systems or our ideas or our shared values or opinions, and we form these Facebook groups, and we look down on everyone who doesn't belong. And it's just so natural and so easy to divide the world into two categories, them and us. Your them might be people who don't look like you or believe like you or vote like you. But one of the things a story like this does, it reminds us of God's heart for all of the thems in our life. We can't forget that the gospel We saw it just a few weeks ago in John 3, is for whosoever will. God has sent us into this world as his ambassadors to be bridge builders. He sent us to tear down the walls. He's called us to to leave our comfort zones and to go to the outcasts, to go to the lost, to go to the rejects, and to go to the ones that the others reject. Listen, Jesus never told the whole world to come to church. But he he did send his church to go out into the whole world. And what we do here is we we get filled, we get built up so that we are equipped and sent out into the world. And the question for us tonight is, will you go? 
Will you go to the ones that are hurting, that are lost, that are rejected by everyone else? Because those are the very ones that Jesus came to save. And this story highlights that truth. So Jesus goes to Samaria. And then in verse 6, we're told something interesting. It says, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. Now, it would be easy to just kind of quickly read past that little tidbit of information. But it's important because it reminds us of the fact that Jesus fully embraced everything that it means to be human. He was fully God. And as God, I mean, God doesn't get tired, right? It was through the, the prophet Isaiah that the, the Lord said, do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting. He's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And yet here we see Jesus tired and weary from the long journey. Yes, he was fully God, but we can't neglect the fact that he also embraced everything that it means to be fully man. Jesus was the son of God and the son of man. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain. As the son of God, he was able to multiply fish and loaves and feed multitudes. But as the son of man, he grew hungry. As the son of God, he offered living water. But as the son of man, he grew thirsty. As the son of God, he created the entire universe with nothing else but the words from his mouth. But as the son of man, he got tired. And the point, again, in sharing this with you is just to remind you that during his 33 years on earth, Jesus experienced everything that it means to be human. He walked through all the same hardships and difficulties that you and I face. He got hungry and tired and thirsty and sad. Why? because he wanted to be able to relate to you. There's no experience that you can walk through that your Savior hasn't already been there first. And so Jesus comes to the well, and he sits by the well, and he waits. And as he waits, this woman comes. In verse 7, we're introduced to her, a Samaritan woman who came to draw water. And Jesus began to dialogue with her. Now, we know from verse 6 that all of this happened at noon. Now, that wasn't the usual time for women to come to the well to draw water. They would typically do this either early in the morning or late in the afternoon or perhaps even early in the evening. Because why? The desert sun there in the Middle East, it's hot. And so you didn't do much of anything in the middle of the day. But that's exactly when she came. Why? Well, several scholars I read suggested that she probably came because she was uncomfortable and she wanted to avoid run-ins with people she didn't want to see. She was tired of dealing with all of the judgmental looks and all of the cold shoulders of her peers. I mean, there were closer wells that they found that she could have walked to, but she went out of her way to come to this distant well because she didn't want to be seen. Sounds a little bit like us, you know. Oh, I can't go to that store or I, I can't fellowship at that church. I might run into them or I might see her or I might run into them, and I, I don't want to do that. And so here we find this woman doing that very thing, which also probably helps explain why she came alone. Women, they tend to travel in packs, even to this day. Have you noticed this? Like, if I go to a restaurant with my wife and several other friends, at some point during the evening, 
Uh, one of the gals will get up to use the restroom and then she'll ask the other ladies at the table, does anyone else want to go to the restroom with me? This is not something you'll ever find a group of men doing. It's not a question any man has ever asked another man. Hey, you want to go hit the bathroom with me real quick? <laughs> but women, I don't know, you guys are pack animals. You, you, you run as a tribe together and yet here we find this woman coming all Alone. In many ways, she is a picture of isolation, desperation, and loneliness. But she had an appointment with God. It wasn't something she was expecting. It wasn't something she was looking for, perhaps. It wasn't even something she was desiring. It wasn't on her calendar. Meet up with the Son of God and the Savior of the world at Jacob's well at noon. Didn't pop up on her day planner, but it was on God's calendar. You see, Jesus, he'd come all the way from Judea to this well to meet with her. That was about a five or a six hour walk. I don't know if you've ever walked six hours to meet with one person, but that's what Jesus did. But in another sense, you could say that he'd come a lot further than that, couldn't you? Because if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 1, there we learn that Jesus was the Word who was there in the beginning. He was with God, and the Word was God, and he created everything that exists. And then in John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So it, it, when you pan back, you could say that Jesus' journey towards this worm, and it began in eternity past. And for centuries, he was looking forward to this moment when he would leave heaven. And for 33 years, he was waiting. And then he made his way to this well at this exact moment because he wanted to meet with this woman. He did all of that for her. And he does the same thing for each one of us. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel unseen. You feel unwanted. You feel like you don't matter to anyone and that God doesn't care about you. This story is here to suggest otherwise. It reminds us that everyone matters to Jesus. Somebody say amen. You have to understand all of the taboos that Jesus was breaking here. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. She was a Samaritan woman. They weren't supposed to mix. They weren't supposed to talk to each other. But Jesus, he sheds all of the social norms and the, the cultural customs. He didn't care about any of that stuff. You know what he cared about? He cared about her. He cared about her heart. Others ignored her. Others despised her. Others looked past her, not Jesus. He didn't diminish her or devalue her or discriminate against her. He saw her and looked into her eyes, and he spoke to her with love and tenderness. In fact, this is the longest conversation that Jesus had with anyone that you'll read about in the Gospels. Did you know that? It was between Jesus and a hated Samaritan woman. Literally, you could say that he moved heaven and earth to meet with her. And he does the same thing for each one of us. He's here right now, the same Jesus in this room. And he's coming for you. He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go in search of that one lost lamb. And so he engages with her uh, in this conversation about water. And it begins with him asking for a drink. And she's like, oh, wow, I can't believe you're talking to me. And he said, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you'd ask for me. And then they go into this conversation about living water. And then he said to her this. He said in verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, he said to her, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. And he began to tug on something inside of her heart. 
She had a thirsty soul. He was clearly talking more, talking about more than, than H2O at that point. And so she playfully engages with him. And she says, oh, I like this idea of free refills. I mean, I'd love to not have to come to this well over and over again. But, but she's not really engaged on a deeper level. And Jesus wants her to think beyond the physical plane. And he wants to meet her needs at a deeper level. And so he says to her, let's put our finger on the real issue. Why don't you go call your husband? And when he does that, she's like, ouch. See, she thought a spouse would satisfy her. And Jesus was probing that wound. Because he can't heal what you don't reveal. And he wants to heal her heart, but he has to deal with the sin in her heart before he can touch that wound and heal it. And so he begins to probe in that wound. I mean, she had run to the altar five different times. She was sure that finding the right guy would scratch the itch on the inside of her soul. And so over and over again, she sought the fairy tale. But each and every time, she found herself in another nightmare instead. She kept kissing Prince Charming and ending up with a toad. I don't know how that happens. It was like the reversal of every fairy tale we read about. She probably started out life as a hopeless romantic, dreaming of her perfect wedding. But each failed marriage led her to become increasingly jaded. Her sweetness gave way to cynicism. She grew hard and cold until eventually she just gives up on the whole idea of finding her happily ever after. And she just, she's just shacked up with some guy. At least he can meet my needs, whatever that looks like, whatever that means. She was trying to satisfy her thirst at the well of relationships, but she was leaving increasingly dehydrated. This is a picture of what so many people, even to this day, do. You need to find yourself in this story. Think of it like this. Imagine someone out adrift on the ocean in the middle of the sea on a, on a life raft. And, and quickly, they run out of water. And so they're surrounded by this body of water, the ocean. And the solution might seem obvious. If you're thirsty, just dip your cup and take a drink. But that would be a huge mistake, wouldn't it? Why? Well, because of the, the high salt content in the ocean's water. If you were to, to drink that water, which, oh, it must look so tempting as your body is just screaming for hydration. But if you take a drink of that salt water, in the end, it's going to leave you thirstier than you were when you began. And that's a picture for us of what this woman was doing and what so many others like her try to do. They try to quench their thirst with salt water. And that's what Jesus was touching on as he talked to her. One author I was reading put it like this, and I quote, Jesus could see the ache in her heart. He could see the parched places of her soul that she tried unsuccessfully to quiet. He could see her, listen, he could see her trying to fill her heart bucket with the well water her world offered. I like that metaphor. I like that picture. Her heart bucket. Our hearts are like buckets. <laughs> Our hearts are like buckets. But if that's true, then they're like buckets that are filled with holes. And the things of this world are like wells. 
And we go around with our heart bucket each and every day. And, and there are all kinds of wells that people go to to try to, to satisfy their soul. There's a, a well called sex and a well called wealth and a well called approval and a well called love. And I could go on and on. And every day people wake up and they run to the well and they fill their bucket. But by the time they get home from the well, it's already run dry. It leaves them thirsting again. Every single well in this world will leave you thirsting again. The high wears off. The relationship doesn't satisfy like you thought it would. The promotion doesn't bring happiness. The fame is never enough. In fact, you could take that phrase that Jesus spoke to this woman, and you could write it over just about every well in this world. Drink from this water, and you will thirst again. And that's not just me saying that, that is the experience of countless people and the testimonies of stars and celebrities over the years confirm and reaffirm this truth again and again. In the 60s, the Rolling Stones were the biggest band in the world. I mean, they had it all. The world was their oyster. They had all the money, the fame, and the success that a person could ever want. But by their own admission, it still wasn't enough. And they, they sang about the futility of everything in their hit song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And doesn't that song feel like it could still be as relevant today as ever? I mean, it's like an anthem for each successive generation. It doesn't matter who you are or how much you have. If the well you're running to isn't Jesus, it's going to leave you thirsty again. Which is why Jesus spoke to her of living water. When Jesus talked to her about living water, he wasn't just offering her water from another, another well. He was offering her himself. He was saying, let me now be the one who satisfies you and fulfills the deepest longings of your heart. You see, the mistake that she was making is she kept running to the well. Jesus, in turn, wanted to take her and turn her into a spring. He says, the, the living water that I'm going to give you, it will become in you a spring. Now, there's a difference between a well and a spring. A well taps into an underground reservoir of water in most instances. instances. But eventually, that well can run dry, and it often does. But a spring is, is fed from subterranean replenishing sources of water so that it doesn't run dry. And this is what Jesus was saying. If you come to me, you're going to be fed. You're going to be filled. And every time you thirst, there's going to be an endless supply of living water to meet your needs. It will bubble up. He says it will well up within you. And there's a really cool word picture there. The word that he uses for well up, it literally means to leap out of you. In fact, if you were to turn to Acts chapter 3, you'll find the story of Peter, John, Peter and John as they make their way to the temple one night. And they see this lame man sitting there, and he's expecting that he's going to receive something from them. And Peter locks eyes with him, and he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he takes this man who couldn't walk by the hand, and it says he leaped up to his feet. And that's the exact same word that gets used here. When it says he leapt to his feet, that's what the, the imagery here. The, the water inside you, when you come to Jesus, it will leap within you and bubble up 
and spill out over all of your life. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, who doesn't want that kind of life? A, a, a life source that is continually replenished, something that bubbles out and over. Listen, friends, this is what you were created for. It's what God created you to walk in. It's the purpose and plan that he had predestined for each and every one of his people. That you would know this life, that you would walk in this power, that you would experience the living water of Jesus. And so he speaks to the woman on this point, and she's, she's intrigued, and, and she's somewhat interested, but she's also a little, I don't know, nervous. It was making her feel uncomfortable, and so she tries to divert the conversation in verse 19. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. <laughs> you think? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we should worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that God the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Amen. So all this talk about husbands and living water and, and shacking up with a guy she's not married to, it made her uncomfortable, as I mentioned. So she tries to change the subject, and she steers the conversation towards something that is abstract and theological and, and controversial. It was a diversion tactic. By the way, people do this all the time when you're sharing Jesus with them. They'll try to like, well, I don't know, and they start to get uncomfortable, and they're like, well, let's talk about Trump, or let's talk about politics, or let's, let's get off of Jesus and talk about the age of the earth, or anything other than Jesus. People love to make things about secondary issues. So Jesus addresses her question, but then he quickly redirects the conversation back to what really matters. He says, at the heart of what you're asking is worship. And so let's talk about worship, what God is really looking for. It's not a building. It's not about a place. She's like, worship is to happen here, or you say it's to happen here, there. And Jesus is like, it's not about the place. It's about your heart. And the heart is the place where God's spirit longs to dwell and to reside. And you have a worshiper's heart, and God wants to waken that within you because it's what you've been created and designed to do. In fact, when Jesus talks about worship, he uses a very specific word. There are dozens of Hebrew words and Greek words for worship. But Jesus, out of all of those words that he could have chosen, he chooses the Greek word proskuneo, proskuneo to describe worship in verse 24. This is the kind of worship that the Father looks for, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Now, proskuneo, it's often translated as bow down. And that's one translation, but it goes deeper than that. Because the word proskuneo comes from a combination of two words. Pros means towards, moving towards. And kaneo means to kiss. So really, the truest meaning or, or, or understanding of the word proskuneo is to move towards and kiss. Now, that would have landed in her heart in a specific way, wouldn't it? What had she been chasing her whole life? Intimacy. 
What had she done five times? She'd gone to the altar and she'd stood in front of family and friends. She'd professed her love and made her vows and said her I do's and then kissed her groom. And five times she had left empty and frustrated. And Jesus says, what you've really been searching for your whole life is this intimacy that you'll only ever find in the heart of your father. And that's where your search for love will finally cease when you come to the heart of the father. Now, at this point, she's really getting uncomfortable. And so she just tries to put the kibosh on the whole conversation in verse 25. She says, I don't know. I know the Messiah called the Christ. When, when he comes, he'll figure all of this out for us. Then Jesus dropped the hammer and declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And by the way, the word he there was added by the translators, shouldn't be in there. Jesus says to her, I am. And he takes the very name of God, ego am I, I am. In saying that, he was saying to her, I am who you've been searching for your whole life. Now, the disciples, with their terrible timing in verse 27, returned just as he said this. And they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one dared to ask him, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. The final heading that we'll close with this evening is this thought, finally satisfied. Man, I love, love, love this part of this story. In particular, I love verse 28, where it says, leaving her water jar, she went back to the town. John is so careful to point out that she left the jar that she had come to fill. Why? Because she didn't need it anymore. She wasn't thirsty anymore. Her soul had been satisfied for the first time in forever. And so she could leave her bucket because she had tasted the living water and it had become in her a spring. And so when she gets to the town, she's just bubbling over and she's getting everybody wet that she comes into contact with. She's just splashing all over everybody. Why? Because her encounter with Jesus had had turned her into an evangelist. Don't you just love that? And so she says, and this is a a curious evangelism tactic. Come meet somebody who told me everything I ever did. I don't know if I want that. (laughs) He sees everything. He told you all of it. Wow, he knows who you are. And yet she wasn't turned off by that. Why? Because although Jesus knew who she was and what she had done, he didn't run from her or recoil against her, but he was drawn to her. And he only pointed out the things that he wanted to heal, the wounds in her heart. And so they came. And this woman ended up bringing revival to her city. We see that in verse, I believe it's 39, where it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Man, she brought revival to her city. Listen, Jesus used a thirsty woman to spark a revival in a, in, in, in a hated corner of the Israelite population. And I wonder how he might use your life in the same way if you'll just give your heart to him. As we close this evening, I, I want to ask a question. Are you thirsty? And if so, what wells have you been running to? 
Because Jesus, he's still here. And he's still offering that living water. Are you drinking from that fountain, from that spring? Are you walking in that bubbled up, overflowing, splash on everyone kind of experience that God came to bring you? Is that your experience of Jesus? Because if it's not, it's what he wants to offer to you today. I love this quote from Blaise Pascal. It says this, listen, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.